Well then, with a view to the blessing of God, let's uh, turn again to the text that we were looking at this morning, or at least we were laying the background to it. In the passage we read, 2 Corinthians 12. And of course we were looking at the thorn in the flesh, uh, which was given to Paul. And in verse 8 he says that concerning this thing, or this thorn, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, our theme, of course, today is just the role of suffering in the Christian life. And as we saw in the morning, and this is extremely important to grasp, as we saw in the morning, the the way we view suffering uh, can sometimes be wrong because it is not something simply to be endured in the Christian life, even to be endured cheerfully, but it is actually something to enable us to serve the Lord better than we would without them. Let me just repeat that. Sufferings are sent by God into a portion to enable us to serve God better than we would without them. And, of course, we've been uh, seeing this in the life of Paul himself this morning, and it was particularly a lesson that he learned very shortly, really, after becoming a Christian. And he learned it through this particular gift, if we could call it that, of a thorn in the flesh. And as we saw in Paul's case, that thorn was a physical affliction, which affected his health and affected even his appearance. And he judged it himself, as all of us would, he judged it to be something that was hindering his work of preaching the gospel. But it would be wrong to confine these kind of thorns uh, to thorns that come in our flesh. They can also come in our spirits too. In fact, as we defined it in the morning, a thorn of this kind is any physical or spiritual affliction which has the capacity in itself to hinder the work of the Lord. But it is never a sin. The thorn in the flesh is not a, it's not indwelling sin. It's not a besetting sin. It's not a sin of any kind. Because the Lord would never stop you praying against a sin of any kind in your life. The Lord would never tell you to be reconciled to it. I hope we made these things quite clear in the morning. So a thorn in the flesh is any physical or spiritual affliction which has the capacity to hinder your work for the Lord. And as we saw in the morning too, and this is just by way of going over it briefly, 
As we saw in the morning too, the thorn comes directly from Satan or immediately through Satan, but ultimately it comes from God himself. The devil's purpose in asking for permission to put this thorn in Paul's flesh, which he has to do, everything he does, he has to have permission for it. His purpose in sending the thorn into Paul's flesh was to afflict him or to buffet him, to beat him up. And of course, the spiritual intention behind that was to bring the apostle into a state of discouragement and hopefully despair so that he would curse God and die. That was his objective. But as we saw in the morning, God's purpose in allowing Satan's request, God's purpose in granting it, was as far from Satan's as could possibly be. God's purpose in granting the thorn was lest Paul should be exalted. So it was either to keep him humble or to make him humble, depending on his exact condition when he got the thorn. Either to keep him humble or to humble him. So you've got Satan's purpose in asking for it, God's purpose in granting it. And of course, the Lord's counsel will always prevail. The Lord would never, and never does permit Satan to do what Satan wants to do, unless God has a particular objective to be attained. We always need to remember that. So really, when we come to it tonight, we're still, we're still looking really at the reason why God sent the thorn. As we saw, it is very much either to humble Paul or to keep him humble. But that, of course, raises the question exactly why did he need that? What was it in his portion 14 years before he wrote this letter that made it necessary for God to give him a thorn? Well, he tells himself that it's all to do with a, a remarkable spiritual experience that God had given him 14 years before the date of this letter. Uh, something in his own life. Now, of course, I drew attention during the reading to the fact that he, he first of all, speaks about someone in the third person. As he moves through the passage, it's very plain that it's himself. The only reason he writes like that is simply because he doesn't like talking about himself. Certainly not in connection with wonderful experiences that the Lord had given him, which might be misused by some people in such a way as to idolise him or to think a lot of him. That would be the very last thing that the Apostle Paul wants. That I hope is true of every Christian. I hope it is also particularly true of every minister of the Gospel. Attention should not drawn, be drawn to self in the pulpit or even outside of it. The Apostle is obviously intending here to give the glory to God and he is so self-effacing as to go to the extent of referring to himself as a man he knows. Well then, the question is, what did he experience? <clears throat> well, it was something that he experienced just a few years after his conversion. A few very short years after his conversion, and just before the Lord sent him as an apostle to the Gentiles. 
In other words, whatever it was, uh, it wasn't just related uh, to the past, it was related to the future. It was very much related to the future. Something that he could look back on and thank the Lord for. He describes it as an experience in which he was caught up, raptured or seized, snatched up into, he says, the third heaven. Now the third heaven is the heaven that we normally think of when we think of heaven. It's not really difficult to understand the ordinary Jewish understanding of heaven. They used to refer to three heavens. The first heaven is what we refer to as the atmosphere, or sometimes heaven. We say that, well, I don't know if we say such a thing, but if I was to say to you that a bird is flying through the heavens, you would understand immediately what I mean. It's up there in the atmosphere. That is their first heaven. Their second heaven is what we refer to as the cosmos, or more strictly speaking, the universe. That is the second heaven. Now, to the Jewish mind and the Jewish understanding, the third heaven was the term used to describe the dwelling place of God, which is beyond uh, the universe as we know it. Now, <clears throat> really, it's, it's not good in a way to think of these as uh, kind of physical movements or gradations from the one to the other, as though you move beyond the atmosphere into the universe, and if you're outside the universe, you're into God's heaven. God's heaven is best thought of as a, another dimension altogether. It is not like this heaven, or like the second heaven. It is another dimension. And we pass through it by passing into another dimension, where God dwells. Now, <clears throat> when we say that God dwells there, the Bible, of course, tells us that God does not dwell uh, anywhere as such. In fact, we're told that the heaven of heavens itself cannot contain him. God doesn't have a dwelling place. There was a time when there was no creation at all. All that existed was God himself in his triune blessedness, Father, Son, and Spirit. But from the moment a creature is created, from the moment the first angels are created, there must be a place where God reveals himself his own glory to these creatures, so that they may behold him and worship him. It is at that point that heaven itself is created. In other words, heaven itself is a created thing. It's not a non-created thing. It is a created place where the Lord can manifest his glory to his creatures. A place of wonder, splendor, glory, beauty, and, of course, holiness, because what makes it so distinctive is the presence of God. The glory of that presence illuminates that place, as, of course, since the ascension has the glory of the Lamb. Now, it's into that third heaven that Paul was caught up. He calls it paradise, a name that's used three times for heaven in the Bible, an old Persian word which just means an enclosed garden. That reminds us of the safety of this place, 
the beauty, the fragrance of it, and indeed the nourishment of it. It's in this garden that the tree of life grows, from which we will be fed into eternity itself. How he's snatched up there. And he's so conscious of how little he knows about the experience. He says, I, I cannot tell, he says, when I went to this third heaven, whether I was actually in the body or not. If you were to ask me, was I there, body and soul, he says, I, I could not really tell you. <clears throat> You'll notice, by the way, that he doesn't rule either of these possibilities out. Obviously, by telling us that he doesn't know, uh, both were possible or else he would have said so. It is possible that he could have been raptured up as Elijah was raptured up, body and soul into glory. As Enoch was raptured up, body and soul into glory, it's possible that he was. It's also, on the other hand, possible that his soul was simply taken from his body and raised up into glory. And just like Lazarus, the brother of Martha and of Mary. His soul was severed from his body and he lay dead and entombed for four days, of course, until, as his sister said, by this time he stinketh. Uh, that too is possible. Now, I'm conscious that some people say, well, how is it possible really for, for a, a sinner to be admitted into heaven like that. But friends, there's no reason why a sinner can't be admitted into heaven. Uh, we saw in the morning from Job chapter 1 that Satan himself had access into heaven. It's one thing to appear in heaven, it's another thing to dwell in heaven. No sinner can dwell in heaven, that is very, very true. But God can call anybody he likes. Any body, soul, or spirit, angelic or human, any time he chooses into his heavenly throne. He's free to do so. And the Bible makes quite plain that many say an evil spirit has appeared in heaven to that end. So whether just in his soul or in his body and soul, he is conscious that he is snatched up into heaven. But what matters to us is not so much the mode in which he appears, uh, but his actual experience. And the interesting thing in connection with that is that he says nothing about what he sees at all. Now I suppose to us, in a way, that what would, what would strike us the most in connection with heaven if we were brought there is what we would see. Um, there are so many glorious things to see in heaven. But he just doesn't mention that at all. What he speaks about is what he heard. Certainly he's talking about visions and revelations of the Lord, but he goes on to speak about the revelations and the things that he heard. The revelations God gave him in heaven weren't visual ones, they were audio. They were through the ear. Words. Words which he describes in verse 4 as inexpressible and unlawful to utter. Inexpressible and unlawful to utter. Now, these two Greek words behind the English words, inexpressible and unlawful to utter, 
have sometimes been translated as though they were saying the same thing. That they are unlawful to utter and unlawful to utter. But of course he doesn't repeat himself like that. The first word inexpressible simply means I can't declare how wonderful they are. That's what it means. The speech, the conversation is just too wonderful to declare. And in fact, he says, neither is it lawful for me to declare it. God has told them not to share what he heard in heaven. Again, the Lord in his sovereignty is free so to do. We may wonder why he puts these restrictions on people. The Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, you remember he put a restriction on the three disciples on the top of the mountain, Peter, James and John. He told them not to speak to anyone of the conversation between himself and Moses and Elijah. A heavenly conversation. Don't speak to anyone about it. And that included the nine disciples. Now, that was a source of jealousy and contention between the disciples. But nonetheless, the Lord was free to bind them in that way. Now, here he's bound Paul like that. He says, you must not speak of the things that you have heard. By the way, friends, I think it's just worth noting that <clears throat> if, um, if the speech in heaven is like that, what, what must the sight be too? It's something that, he says, I, I can't declare, even if I was allowed to, I can't declare how glorious these things were. And that's just a snippet. That's just the snippet of an experience of a man who was just raised there for a while by God in his goodness and his kindness as a preparatory measure in order to help him in his life, to help him in his Christian labours and in his own particular ministry. He can't even declare how, how wonderful it is. Things like that must surely whet our own appetite to be there. Encourage us in striving to be there, to think that it's that wonderful, that even a conversation, just words can't be found to declare the excellence of the conversation. It's not so much that he says the conversation itself uh, is something I can't share, but its excellence is something I can't communicate. So wonderful to hear, just as heaven is also so wonderful to see. Now, why does he get the vision? Well, obviously he gets it for himself. Like I mentioned earlier, significantly he gets it just before he is commissioned for the first time to go to the Gentiles. I mean, the Lord made clear to him right at the beginning when he was converted that he would be sent to the Gentiles and that he would suffer much. God says, for my sake, in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He made that plain, but his initial ministry was to the Jews, just for a number of years. But just before he is commissioned, on his first missionary journey, the Lord takes him up for a little while into heaven to strengthen him for what lies before him. Now, there are many ways in which God comforts us when affliction comes. But I'm sure you can sometimes look back in your life and say that, well, the Lord actually went before me in that. He went before me in that. He filled my cup before he really tried and sifted me. He drew near to me before affliction came. 
Well, that is exactly what happened in the experience of the Apostle. Uh, Calvin said that um, no one should grudge Paul these things because he had enough difficulties to break a thousand hearts. And that is so true. We read about them and considered them this morning. So God prepared him. And God also knows us and he knows what lies ahead of us every step of the way and he equips us for it. You can maybe think of some of the hardest trials in your life and God equipped you for it. Um, I was thinking in this connection recently of someone that uh, I knew, a couple actually, who had become a Christian. And uh, they, had, they had hardly really become Christians when um, affliction came into their family. And um, quite a grievous affliction, really, in both generations of the family. And I remember one day, I distinctly remember being in my study and thinking, well, isn't this a pity? That's what I kind of thought. Isn't it a pity that these difficult things have come into their portion pretty much just after they become a Christian? And then it's as though the Lord said to me, well, you've got to turn that round. Do you not see how he prepared them for this particular difficulty? by becoming Christians and I, I shared that with them and they said that that was exactly what they were thinking themselves how would they have coped with what came upon them had the Lord not come into their lives now that's what I mean he goes before us he goes before us so here he is going before Paul now there are many things in the Christian life that we receive for other people there are some things that we receive uh, for ourselves. Paul could say in this very letter at the beginning, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now listen to what he says. He says, This God who comforts us in all our trials and tribulations, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, sufferings, suffering for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, just as they abound in us, so does our consolation abound through Christ. If we are afflicted, he says, it's for your consolation. In other words, he's conscious that the blessing he gets in his affliction is going to benefit them. So he says, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. And if we are comforted, it is also for your consolation and for your salvation. I suppose 90% of um, what God gives you is to be shared. But there's always that personal work that is just between you and God. I mean, just a few weeks back, we were thinking of when you go to glory that you receive this white stone, if you remember that, and a new name written on it, which nobody knows except the Lord and the person who receives it. So everybody's stone is individual to himself. And that encapsulates the idea that there's an element in your relationship with God that is strictly personal. It's just his knowledge of you and your knowledge of him. There is much 
that you can share, but there will always be something for you. And there are some dealings God has with you that just stays with you. You may tell others perhaps that you've had them, but you won't be able to say what they are, just because they are so personal. And of course, although Paul eventually shares this, there's aspects of it that he doesn't share with anybody at all. And we thank God for these things. They're tokens of his knowledge of us and his love for us at the same time. So there's a spiritual experience here. He's actually caught up into heaven, which is there to strengthen him and to equip him. Now, friends, we're complex creatures. We're complex creatures. And our natural tendency, when God does anything good for us or anything good in us, our natural tendency is to abuse God's gifts and blessings. And we do that through pride, which is so instinctive and innate. We tend to take credit for things. We tend to think ourselves worthy of what God gives us, even when we know theologically we are unworthy of them. We tend to take glory from others for certain experiences that we might have, or certain gifts or privileges that the Lord gives. And instead of deflecting that glory immediately from ourselves to God, we just let it sit on ourselves, either for a while or permanently. And we're so pathetic, spiritually speaking, that we'll take credit for anything like that and let it linger on ourselves. So to check pride, God sends affliction. And we saw that in the morning. To check pride, he sends affliction. Now, I don't know whether pride had begun in the Apostle's heart or whether it was in danger of beginning in the Apostle's heart. I don't know. Either way, God checks it. I think it's useful to remember that he says, lest I should be exalted above. I mean, sometimes you're not conscious, perhaps, that pride was in your life. Well, that's fine, but maybe if God hadn't sent this, you would be. You would be. I mean, only the Lord knows what's in our life and why it's in our life. Only the Lord knows. We, we try and work it all out, but who knows what disasters we would bring upon ourselves if such and such hadn't been put into our boat. Humbling things grievous things and difficult things which the Lord has given us to either bring us low or keep us low. Because, because he knows about us what we don't know about ourselves. Now I just want to notice a couple of things about this. First of all, it's a, it's a very obvious thing in one way, and that's that God uses natural processes for spiritual purposes. For spiritual healing. He uses natural processes like that. In other words, to work humility in your heart. Respectfully and reverently speaking, God doesn't kind of flick a spiritual switch that makes you suddenly humble. That's not the way the Lord works. That's not the way his soul, his spirit interacts with your soul and spirit. What he does is work in your providence working in your heart and will, inclining you, trying you, testing you with a various portion and assortment of things through these natural processes bringing spiritual healing in your hearts. In other words, everything he does is through you. 
He doesn't bypass you. He, like I said, he doesn't flick a switch called humility, but he works to produce humility in your heart, and he uses natural processes for that. You may sometimes say, well, why instead of um, allowing this in my life, why didn't he just make me humble? Well, because that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. It's not the way he works. It's not the way his spirit is, it's not the way your spirit is. The other thing is this, that spiritual healing requires a far, far more labour than you think. When you come to something like, if you're going to straighten the branch of a tree, or even straighten the stem of a tree while it's still young, I mean, it takes a while. If the thing is crooked, if it's growing crooked, you have to, through a process of time, straighten that thing out. Take something we know better. Your teeth are squinted. They've gone out of shape or out of alignment. It's not so easy to get them back in. It's a process of pushing so that the, the natural movement of the tooth moves in that direction. Now, it's more akin to that. That's what's happening in your spiritual life. There'll be a nudge here and a push here, and a pull here, a bit of pruning here, a redirection here, a reorientation here. And by this means, and by that means, the great physician of our soul, the master gardener, and the one who prunes the vineyard, will bring us to the place where he wants us to be. This thorn in the flesh was necessary for Paul. <clears throat> God didn't just do it for some other reason, because he doesn't. In fact, as we thought in the morning, he never willingly afflicts the children of men. The thorn was necessary in Paul's pilgrimage to bring him to the place where God wants him to be. And whatever is in your portion like that, a similar kind of thing, is there because God wants it to be there. Now, you may sometimes say to yourself, well, you know, I would actually find it far more comfortable to think of, of the devil as being the author of my misfortune, and the devil alone. Ah, but when you think about it, there's no comfort in that. Absolutely not. But there is comfort in knowing that what he does is overseen by the great physician who just knows exactly where to cut and when to cut and how deep to cut. And he never goes wrong. I said a while back that our great advocate has never lost a case in the court of law. Can I say that our great physician has never lost a patient on the operating table. He knows exactly what to do, when and how to do it. So he uses natural processes for spiritual purposes, and these are far more complex than we understand them to be. And I think it's worth saying in connection with that, that as long as you keep resisting the devil, he can only do you good. He doesn't like to be told that. He doesn't like me hearing that, me saying that even tonight. I can guarantee you that he doesn't like me saying that. But the fact of the matter is that like other angels, he is a ministering spirit to send forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. Can't do you harm if you are a child of God 
because he's in the control of God himself. It's in that sense that the prophet Isaiah can say that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Have you ever wondered what that really meant? No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Well, that's what it means. He, he cannot hurt you. Oh, well, yes, he, of course he can to a degree. I mean, we looked at Job in this connection in the morning. Satan asked permission, he got permission, and he hurt him all right. But as James says, what was the end of the Lord? What was the Lord's purpose? What was the Lord's intention? To show his own mercy and grace. The book of Job, like I said in the morning, has been a comfort now for over 3,000 years. Well over 3,000 years, it's been a comfort to many. That's all Satan got out of it. So God sends the affliction to humble him. Now, how does Paul react to it? Now, like I said in the morning, it, it was some kind of disease that certainly affected his eyes, maybe affected other things too, to the point where people didn't find it easy sometimes even to look at him. Well, it's important to remember that, like ourselves, he wouldn't immediately realise God's purpose in sending this thing. I mean, when, when we get a, an illness of, of any considerable seriousness, even if it's not very serious, I mean, we, nobody wants it, nobody embraces it. I mean, we all want to be rid of it. And so it's quite natural that his response to this sickness was, Lord, heal me of it. Heal me. And that's what he does. I mean, he does the right thing. He, he takes his affliction to God in prayer. There's nothing wrong with his prayer, is there? I besought the Lord, he says. I besought the Lord, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Why shouldn't he? It's an affliction after all. As we saw in the morning, all afflictions ultimately originate in sin. They would never exist were it not for the fall. So it's right for us to respond to an affliction by asking the Lord to take it away. <clears throat> Lord, I know that you do not willingly afflict the children of men, and I ask you to take this affliction from me. What's more, O oh Lord, it is hindering me, as far as I can understand, in the proclamation of the gospel. Surely, I would be more effective in the work to which you have called me if I was healthy than I am sick. I mean, can we not all say that? We'd say, surely, Lord, I'm more able to do anything for you healthy than I am to do it sick. It's an obvious prayer to pray. And what's more, he doesn't just pray specifically, which a lot of our prayers, by the way, lacking specificity and I include myself alone yourself but he also plays, prays persistently three times just as the blessed Lord prayed in the garden of Gethsemane three times I would understand these three times to be three prolonged seasons of earnest prayer just as the Lord had in the garden of Gethsemane three prolonged earnest seasons of prayer. He prays, in other words, sincerely, passionately, earnestly. At the prayer meeting recently, in a, in a few prayer meetings, we were looking at the, at the unfortunate widow, the widow who um, wouldn't let go of the unjust judge until he gave her justice. 
It's not easy to get justice from an unjust judge, but she kept at him until he gave her justice. And the Lord says, so you must plead with your heavenly Father that he would help you too. So in other words, Paul knows that you've got to pray through till you get an answer. We can never afford to forget that either, that God always answers prayer. Yea, nay, or wait, as we saw, he always answers, and you work through till you get your answer. But you'll notice that it wasn't God's will to grant his petition. Now you may actually say, it's possible for you to say that that invalidates his prayer then. You would say, well surely it can't have been a proper prayer if it wasn't actually God's will. You could even quote the Catechism to that effect, because the Catechism asks, what is prayer? Question 98, and says, it is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. And you may say, well, this wasn't agreeable to his will, so it can't really have been a proper prayer. But that's to confuse things that differ. When the Catechism says that we're to pray for things agreeable to his will, the Catechism is talking there about God's revealed will. In other words, you must never pray against his revealed will. So if God says that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian, you should not uh, pray against that. Or anything of that kind. More basic, if God says you shall not steal, you, you must not pray for um, to, to possess something that your neighbour possesses or something like that, 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 you, would, that you would get, that, you, that would be coveting as well as stealing. It's about praying against his revealed will. The fact is that it is God's will to pray for sickness to be taken away. That's one of the general things that he encourages us to come with. Whether or not he grants you that specific request doesn't mean that your prayer was against his will. Because his will is that you pray for that. But it's his prerogative to say yea or nay. I hope we understand the difference between the two things. For example, well, it's, it's really a little bit like when you think of a, a church assembly or a, a presbytery or something like that. Let's say, I know this is very technical and ecclesiastical, but it will work for the purposes. If, if you petition that court, say you send in a petition asking for something, the assembly, first of all, has to receive the petition. What that means is that the petition is respectful, it's in order, there's nothing wrong with it, there's no bad spirit, there's no malice intended, nothing like that. But at the end of the petition, the petitioner asks for something and says, or do otherwise as your reverend court sees fit. And so the, the, the presbytery or the assembly may say, well, we receive your petition, but having considered it, we cannot grant its grave. But they'll give it due treatment, they'll respect it, because it's not frivolous, it's not careless, and it's lawful, and it has integrity. Received, but not granted. Well, the same thing is true with our prayer. Just because your prayer was not actually in line with what God is going to do doesn't invalidate your prayer then. When Paul took this sickness to God and said, this is an affliction and I believe it's hindering me, will you please take it away? 
that earnest prayer comes up to the great intercessor who is so compassionate full of kindness and pity and mercy and the intercessor says I hear your prayer and I would love to remove it and one day I will remove it but not now it must stay with you I receive your petition but I don't grant your crave and just because God doesn't grant your crave that doesn't mean that God hasn't received your petition anything you ask in the name of Christ in thankful acknowledgement of his mercies he hears he hears so that's how Paul prayed he prayed specifically and persistently but Christ says no but interestingly enough he doesn't just leave it at that because the Lord says although I am not granting you your request I am nonetheless giving you a message to encourage you of course that message is the words of our text the message is that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. But for now, it's not the content of the message that matters. It's actually the fact that a message is given. And I think that's important too, because whenever Christ isn't giving something that, in one respect, he wants and longs to give, but it's not good for us at the time, he will find ways of encouraging us in that situation. He doesn't, he refuses gently when the request is good. He refuses gently. And that's why if, if God for some reason isn't granting the crave of your petition, listen carefully. Listen carefully in church. Listen carefully when you open your Bible. Listen carefully when you go to God in prayer because that's a two-way communication exercise. Listen carefully because... He will give you a word in your situation that will encourage you until the time comes for that prayer to be, or for that crave to be granted. And even if it's not to be granted at all, perhaps especially if it's not to be granted at all, there will be a word of encouragement and sustenance because Christ does not like to let us down like that or what appears to us to be let down without a word of encouragement. And here, the word that he gives is just the words of the text. My grace, he said, is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The Greek word for weakness is the same word as infirmity. Maybe it might have been better had the same word been preserved through just to impress that continuity, but it doesn't matter. My strength is made perfect in infirmity or in weakness. Now friends, these are great words. They're great words written, great words preached, uh, great words when the Holy Spirit drops them into your soul in a time of need. My grace is sufficient. Grace, that's a word we associate with help, mercy, kindness. Help is a good word. Help, I think, covers almost every idea contained in the grace of God. 
But here it's particularly tied to the idea of the power of God, simply because of the way the sentence is written. My grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. So the grace here is enabling power. The grace here is what God wants to accomplish in your life and in the lives of others too. My strength, he said, is made perfect in your weakness. My strength. How much we want the strength of God in our lives. You've all experienced as Christians what it's like to be left to your own weak self. You've also discovered what it's like to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And once you experience the vast gulf between the two, you want you want power. I want power to speak, power to witness, power to live as a husband, power to live as a wife, power in being a father, power in being a mother. You want power. Well, the Lord is effectively saying two things to Paul. First of all, my uh, grace is sufficient for you, sufficient to sustain you, to enable you to endure and to enable you to persevere and to enable you to bring forth fruit unto holiness. Thorns are no hindrance to that. Believe me, says the Lord, what I am able to do in your life has nothing in that respect to do with thorns. You think they're crippling you. You think they're hindering you as a Christian. That if this was out of your life, if this was out of your experience, you'd be a better man or a better woman. No, he says, that is not at all the case. In fact, he says, not just will I sustain you, and not just is my grace enough to sustain you, but it will also equip you and enable you to be a better Christian and a better person and a better witness and a better apostle than you would otherwise have been. Because that's your calling to do good to others. My strength is actually made perfect in your weakness. This word made perfect in the Greek means reaches its destination, attains its objective. My strength is coursing through you for the benefit of the world, for the benefit of others. And it does so best when you are nothing. And when you are absolutely weak in and of yourself. And this thorn may be so low that it's keeping you on your bed. Keeping you on your bed and you say, well, how can I possibly serve God lying on my bed as well as I could if I wasn't? Well, God knows the answer to that. God knows the answer to that. The whole point God is making to Paul, remember from the morning is that this thorn makes him a more productive Christian than he would be without it. In other words, he's not a Christian in spite of having a thorn in the flesh. And let's face it, that's the natural way we look at the passage. When we read the passage, that's the kind of impression it makes on us. Oh, we can still be Christians with a thorn in the flesh. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that I have put this affliction in your portion to make you far more than you would otherwise have been. That's a completely different dynamic. A completely different truth. A wonderful thing. My grace works better in your life when you yourself are actually weak. And you say, oh Lord, I don't believe that. I actually, I cannot believe that that is so. 
our well, friends, that's where faith comes in. Always comes down to faith. God is effectively saying to him that my desire for you is to be a vehicle for my power. And I will take away from inside of you what hinders my power. Take that away. And when I chop that away, my power is let loose. In fact, what's really being inferred here, sorry, what's being implied and what we should infer is the fact that our pride, can I say it respectfully, gets in the way of God's power. That's really what's being implied here, that our pride gets in the way of God's power. And therefore God gets rid of it. He brings it down low so that his power can come out from us again. And I honestly think sometimes, friends, and I don't put myself out of this, I think a lot of what's wrong with us today has to do with pride. It has to do with pride. There are so many times in your own Christian life you look at yourself and you say, well, I peel away that layer, and I peel away that layer, and I peel away that one, and at last, pride. That's what's underneath it all. But my power works through your weakness. Let me say this too, that the tense in which this is written in the Greek language is quite important too. Because in verse 9, Paul says that God said to me, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. He has said to me. He's recalling a thing in the past that was profound and decisive at the point, and he's hoisting it into the present, as much as to say, he said it to me once and for all, he says, and I've learned that lesson. I learned it 14 years ago, he says, and I still haven't forgotten it. <clears throat> Now, some of us aren't as good at learning as the Apostle Paul. Like I said, a, a few weeks back in another context, some of us repeat classes very often. But Paul learned this 14 years ago, he said, and it was God's final answer to my question. It was God's final answer. I'm not taking this away. I'm not taking it away. I wonder how often this text is preached on in charismatic churches where they think that everything should be healed. There was nothing wrong with Paul's request with the sincerity, nothing wrong with the petition, but it was just God's will, you're not getting healed. You get no healing because I work better with you like this. But Paul says, he said this to me once, and it was through 14 years ago that his grace was sufficient for me, and it's through now as well. And sometimes we need to accept um, our situation and just see what God does through it. I can think of someone like Arthur Pink, uh, pits close to him, and he came to a conclusion that God was wanting him to write, and he did write. And we're thankful he wrote. You can think of a woman like Joni Erickson, who of course had a, a terrible diving accident and ended up a quadriplegic at 15. Would she have ever done for God what she did had she not had the diving accident? I'm sure many a time she said, well, that's hindered me. 
we're not the best judges of what hinders us. And just last of all, and very quickly, how does Paul respond to that answer? Well, it's a kind of spiritually rising crescendo. In verse 9, he says, at the end of verse 9, I will boast in my infirmity. Now, he's not going to boast in the visions. He says, I'm, le- I'm telling you they're there because I have to tell you they're there. But I'm not going to boast about them. He says, I'm going to boast in the fact that I'm nothing. And I've been brought to nothing. In fact, he says, I'll boast in that gladly. I will most gladly boast in my infirmity. And, in fact, he goes on to say in verse 10, I take pleasure in my infirmity. Now, that's quite hard to get to. You think that's pretty high pinnacle to rise to on the mountaintop. But yes, he says, I take pleasure in my infirmities and in my reproaches, in my persecutions and in my distresses for Christ's sake. Because, he says, when I am weak, I am strong. And why does he take pleasure in it? Because, he says in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, I boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest or tabernacle upon me. What an interesting expression. It's as though when he's actually brought low by God through an affliction of one kind or another, what he says what seems to happen is that, that God then tabernacles over me. And, and the, the power of God is in me and through me uh, when I become nothing in myself, when I have nothing to bless, to boast in, and nothing to glory in. I am in a tabernacle where the presence and the power of God dwells. And have we not known in our own Christian lives that we are most effective when we are most disillusioned with ourselves, most at the throne of grace, most bemoaning our own failings and weaknesses, lo and behold, that is when we're suddenly a blessing to others. Because the power can go through the channel. It's not blocked by pride. Well then, if God desires to work in us and through us, let's accept our suffering. If he is saying no, let's accept our suffering. And pray that God will use it to his own glory. Let's call on his name. (coughs) (coughs) Oh Lord, oh God, you know how difficult it is for us to uh, accept weakness and infirmity. How we kick against it and resist it. And uh, how much we would desire to be free from it and We know too that it is uh, your ultimate will that we be free from all afflictions. But for now it is sometimes needful to have them. Give us grace to endure them with Christian dignity and fortitude. But above all to recognise that we are meant to be empowered by them. That these things are there to enable us to be more than we otherwise would be. So help us not to be frustrated by anything, or to be cast down by anything, even if we are sorrowful to be always rejoicing, knowing that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And whatever the devil's intention in afflicting us, we know that you, O Lord, will do us good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Our last singing is in Psalm 27. And singing at verse 12. Give me not to my enemy's will, for witnesses that lie against me risen are, and such as breathe out cruelty. I fainted had, unless that I believed had to see the Lord's own goodness in the land of them that living be. Wait on the Lord. And be thou strong, and he shall strength afford unto thine heart. Yea, do thou wait, I say, upon the Lord. Wait on him in your affliction. The last three stanzas we stand to sing. <coughs> Spirit be with you all. Amen.